Please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. It's page 976 in the Pew Bibles if you're using those. Today is Reformation Sunday. 497 years ago, give or take a few days, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. It was the symbolic start of the Reformation. Today, churches from Presbyterian to Reform to Baptist celebrate our heritage as we were all born out of the Reformation that Luther helped to ignite. Today is also the 485th anniversary of when Thomas More became Lord Chancellor of England. By this time, he had already written several books critical of Martin Luther's theology and the Protestant Reformation, including Responsio ad Lutherum, in which he called Luther, quote, an ape, quote, a drunkard, quote, and a lousy little friar. It was not just Luther who found himself a target of Moore's works. William Tyndale was a faithful Christian who translated the scriptures into English. That was against the law at that time. Before he was executed, Tyndale was on the receiving end of Moore's half-million-word defense of Catholic rights and doctrines. Unfortunately for Moore, the King of England had a falling out with the Catholic Church, which refused to grant him permission to marry a second time. Moore's conscience would not permit him to declare Henry VIII the head of the Church of England. So ultimately, Moore went from writing defenses of the Catholic Church on behalf of Henry to being decapitated by him for treason. It was not a safe time to be theologically inclined in England for either Protestants or Catholics, you might say. The same was true, of course, on the mainland of Europe as well. Luther's writing and the more widespread availability of the Bible starting to be in the language of the people was igniting a reformation around the, around the world, the Christian world. Because the church and the state were so intertwined, the Reformation, of course, was not just a mere theological dispute. Money and power undoubtedly played a big role in the Reformation in some ways, particularly in England. But at its heart, the proximate cause of the Reformation was theological. But who cares, you might say, that was five centuries ago, right? Why should we care today? Well, you should care because that dispute 500 years ago sadly lives on today. How then can we be saved? One side contends that man, through faith, cooperates with grace and becomes righteous. He is declared righteous because he is in fact righteous. And if he's not quite righteous by the time of death, then he'll go through a time of more purification after death. The other side says that man is justified by a righteousness outside himself and is acceptable to God only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The very heart of the gospel was at stake then and it's at stake today. This morning we're going to explore a question upon which your eternal destiny depends. What will you say to God when you face Him in death? To answer that question, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul wrote Ephesians from prison. He was there because he proclaimed the gospel. Uh, then, just as now, and at all times in its history, biblical Christianity was dangerous. Today, more followers of Christ are suffering persecution than ever before in our history. In this first chapter, Paul wrote about election, substitutionary atonement, God's sovereignty, and the Holy Spirit. He taught these things hoping that Christians would know the hope to which they've been called, the rich future that awaits all Christians at death, and the immeasurable power of God's greatness. 
when we get to today's passage, that's when we get to today's passage in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. We're going to look at this under three points. First, who we were. Second, what God did. And third, why God did it. So let's look first at who we were. Go ahead and look down there at uh, chapter 2, verse 1 with me. We're going to read the first few verses. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Let's think first, who is Paul talking about when he's writing you, us, and we? And then we can see what the text says about them and what influences they used to live under. We know from the very beginning of Ephesians, from chapter 1, verse 1, that Paul's writing to Christians in Ephesus. The early church had both Jews and non-Jews. Paul was Jewish. Probably most of his readers were, going to be not, were not Jewish. So he starts in verse 1 of chapter 2 by saying you. And most commentators think he's referring here to Gentiles. And then in verse 3, he brings in Jews when he says, we all. But really, what Paul has to say about Christians' past is true for everybody in the whole world. In verse 4, he says that we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We know from the book of Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that non-believers cannot submit to God's law or please God, and that no one is righteous not even one. That does not mean that every man is as bad as he possibly could be, of course. God restrains evil deeds through conscience and government and common grace. But it does mean that man is totally unable to desire or do anything pleasing to God when it comes to salvation. Scripture is clear on this point. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is the comprehensive verdict of God on all mankind apart from Christ. How would you explain the evil in the world? Some say man is born innocent but corrupted by society. But that theory does not hold water. Parents don't have to teach their children how to be selfish, do we? It's actually hardwired into them. Every society on earth has to deal with sin. Verse 3 here says that by nature we were children of wrath. And that phrase there, by nature, is used elsewhere in Scripture when Paul talks about being a Jew by nature, which means a Jew by birth, by inheritance. We are sinners by inheritance. Each of our parents sinned, and we inherited our sinful nature from them. David said, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And ultimately, we can trace this sin back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. We are not sinners just because we sin. More fundamentally, we sin because we're sinners. The people 500 years ago had a pretty good sense that they were sinners. Those who were literally selling indulgences for forgiveness counted on that guilt. Today, I think our bigger problem seems to be denying that we're sinners at all. We seem to minimize our sins. We think, I'm generally good. I make mistakes from time to time, but, but I'm a good person. Some reason, you know, God can't be that upset with me when there's really bad people out there, can he? 
This reminds me of a recent evening commute uh, when I was driving home. I was driving along Independence Avenue in, in Washington there. I just barely missed a traffic light, but I was the first in line. And I knew that if I timed this light right, I could get through the next few lights. So I was very eager to go. So as I'm watching the scene here, uh, the cross traffic light turns red. And much to my shock, a car goes way past the red light and just zips through the intersection. I'm just thinking, boy, what is this guy doing? But no sooner had I cleared the intersection myself when I heard sirens and saw lights in my rearview mirror. The policeman came up to me and he notified me that I was inching into the intersection before it turned green. I didn't think I was, uh, but my first reaction and what came out of my mouth was, but did you see that car that ran the red light? And he said, let's take responsibility for our own actions, sir. <laughs> I was busted, right? Just like Adam in the garden when he pointed at Eve, we all want to compare ourselves to others. We want to shift blame, right? And when we're before the traffic, point, uh, traffic court, we can't point to the guy who ran the red light. Or say we were speeding, we can't say, yeah, but I wasn't speeding as fast as this other person. We must each answer for our own misconduct. And the same is true when we go before God. We can't excuse our hatred because someone else murdered. We can't excuse our lust because someone else committed adultery. Now the ways to sin and disobey God are numerous. There are obvious outward sins like murder and adultery. But Jesus did teach that those who hate in their heart have committed murder in it. And that those who look at someone not their spouse with lust commit adultery. In fact, Jesus summed up the law saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who among us can say that we have reached this standard? None of us. So in considering our sin, we should not consider so much how bad our sin was compared to the sins of others, or even how much someone was hurt by our sin. Instead, we need to consider what our sin says to and about the infinitely holy and wise God. It says God is not trustworthy. It says His ways are not the best ways. We're essentially saying that we know better than God. Look again at the text. It says we were dead in our sins. Not mired in trespasses and sins, not struggling with trespasses and sins, but dead in trespasses and sins. Dead men can do nothing to help their condition, and we are completely unable to do anything to please God or earn His favor. Also, did you notice in the text that we're called followers? It says we follow the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. A clear reference to Satan. When we aren't living under God's commands, we like to think that we're marching to our own beat, don't we? We think we're free and unencumbered, but we're not, are we? As if the temptations of the world were not formidable enough, this text says that we follow the prince of the power of the air, that reference to Satan. Make no mistake, Satan does exist. And those who are dead in their trespasses and sins especially are subject to his influence in a profound way. And to the extent we're not following the world or the devil, we're slaves to our own desires. Fundamentally, our desire is to rule our own life without regard to what God wants. Left to our own devices, we're incredibly selfish and self-centered. We want what we want. We want it when we want it. And we find, uh, we find that to get the same pleasure, we have to delve more and more into sin and become really controlled by it. 
It's like the drug or the pornography addict. He needs more and more just to try to get the same high. And our downward spiral of depravity, we ignore the best things in life and we're enslaved by our desires. Before we believed, we lived for this world and we followed the course of it. Many of us centered our lives on ease, material possessions, or success. The spirit of the times, the course of this world, is basically what we think is valuable, important, what we think is right. What does the world most value? What do you most value? Maybe a powerful job, high public profile, people's good opinion of you. Maybe you just really want a special relationship in your life. Or for those who are inclined more to family, maybe you, you want that attractive spouse and healthy, successful children and opportunities for education and enrichment and fun vacations and, of course, plenty of leisure. Now, these are not all bad things in themselves, but if we consider them as the most valuable things, the ultimate things, then we're in danger of conforming to the world. As John MacArthur said, there are many different value systems in the world, but they all agree that success in this world is more important than pleasing God. And that's a lie. So what is the verdict of the judge on our sins? The Bible is clear that the wages of sin, the sentence, if you will, is death. Not just physical death, but eternal punishment under the wrath of God. Romans 2 says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So believing brother or sister, consider what it was that you valued before you became a Christian or what you struggle with today. Make an inventory and sit down with your spouse or a close friend and ask them whether your desires or your priorities have changed since you became a Christian and whether they see them changing in your life today. If they haven't changed and they're not changing, I think you want to think hard about what it means to follow Christ rather than following the course of this world, the devil, and the desires of your flesh. If they have changed, then praise God and pray that you would become more like Christ and you would continue to put to death your old self. This text also, I think, should inform uh, parents for, for child-rearing, for believing parents. We know, unlike most of the, or much of the world, that children are not innocent creatures corrupted by a bad society. On the contrary, they inherited from us the same sin nature that we inherited from our parents. Of course, it doesn't mean that children are uh, only capable of doing wicked things. Men are made in the image of God and can do wonderful things. But we're fallen and we're capable of doing great evil as well. It's our responsibility to raise our children in the nurture and admission of the Lord. And that means we're to understand that our children are dead in trespasses and sins until, Lord willing, they are born from above. This should lead us to pray regularly for our children that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened and they would come to know the Savior, Jesus Christ, as their own personal Lord and Savior. Children, have you ever wondered why it's so difficult to obey your parents? Because the Bible says we're unable to do any good on our own. So next time mommy and daddy tell you to do something, you should certainly obey. But you should also pray. Ask God to help you. And when if necessary, and it probably will be necessary, ask Him to forgive you. That is what He longs to do. 
My non-believing friend, do you consider yourself free and unencumbered? What do you make of this text that says before conversion, you are walking according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and living in the passions of your flesh? Is it possible that you're not as free as you think you are? Now, now that we see who we were apart from salvation, let's consider our second point, what God did. If we just stopped here, we'd be in pretty bad shape, wouldn't we? So let's keep reading. Follow along as I read, uh, starting there in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've seen that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but look at these two first words. But God. We were dead, but God. We were horrible sinners, but God. We deserve death, but God. Here it says that God made us alive. Notice it does not say, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but you reformed your life. You were dead, but you went to church. But you were baptized, but you wised up. No, no, no. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in God. It is God who changes everything. He says, but God here, He made us alive. That is the good news. That is the reason why the church, one of the reasons why the church was so threatened. Salvation is available to all. It's available to you today. It's free, and it comes from the hand of God Himself. We do not need any mediators save the Son of God who calls us to believe in Him. And with Scripture translated and available, we can read and we can hear the offer of God for ourselves. This is the truth that changes everything. It turned Europe upside down and it can change your life today. But God made us alive. So what does it mean to be made alive? Well, Jesus told a religious leader, Nicodemus, that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again in John 3. The Apostle Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Scriptures are clear that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus Himself said that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. You know, we want to think that we had something to do with being saved, don't we? That we cooperated with grace and somehow made it effective. But look at how many times Paul points out our helplessness in just these few short verses. Verse 1, dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 5, dead in trespasses. Verse 5 again, by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, this is not your own doing. Are we getting the picture yet? Verse 8, it is, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, it's not the result of works. We added nothing to the finished work of salvation. Dead men can do nothing about their condition. 
And this focuses our praise where it ought to be, on God. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. This is the very heart of the good news. We cannot save ourselves. We were unable and we are unable to please God on our own. But God can make us alive. So how does He do this? Well, notice this in verse 5. Look back at the text. He made us alive together with Christ. See that? It's only because of our union with Christ that we're made alive to God. We've seen that on our own, we're subject to our desires and the devil's schemes and to the world's manipulation. That's true of every person who's ever walked on earth, except for one, Jesus Christ. He was born of the Holy Spirit, born a virgin, of a virgin, and lived a perfect, sinless life. His actions did not alienate God. It's actually far from it. Just the opposite. At His baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus. A voice from heaven said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. In case we missed that, God said it again at the transfiguration. And then we see the Father's ultimate approval of Christ's work when Jesus was raised from the dead after suffering on the cross, when He, was ascended into he when He ascended into heaven. Jesus Christ willingly took on the sins of everyone who would repent of His sins and believe that Jesus is the Son of God and died in their place. Colossians 2 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He took our sins away, nailing them to the cross. In fact, the Bible tells us that God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ not only pays the penalty for our sin, He gives us His righteousness. When God looks at us on Judgment Day, He will see the righteous works that Christ did on our behalf, and He will accept us because of Christ. When we are there at the judgment seat, Christ will be our advocate. He will plead our case. Father, He'll say, don't look at His sins. Look at my righteousness. I paid the penalty for His sins. Friends, reject salvation by works. A wise preacher once said that biblical religion is spelled D-O-N-E, done. Every other religion is spelled D-O, do. In other words, every other religious system tells you to earn your way to heaven. When you face God, will you boast to Him of your works? How ridiculous is that? Instead, realize that you are alienated from God because of your sins, but because of the work of Christ and the grace of God and your union with Him, you can be accepted by God. Not only has God accomplished salvation for everyone who believes, but the text says even more than that. It says that God has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places. There in verse 6. You may have noticed that the verse is in past tense. Why? Well, the commentaries say that the original Greek communicates that what is written is so sure that it's written in the past tense. You know, God is not like us. We can't keep our promises. We may not have the power to keep them. We may not have the will to keep them. We may not have the fortitude to keep them. God is not like that at all. He is all-powerful, and He is good to His Word. He will keep His promises. So what we're reading about here is, is as good as done. It is uh, our future. And because we're identified with Christ, we'll be exalted with Him. You can read Ephesians chapter 1 this afternoon for a further taste of this glorious truth. We have seen in this text... 
before were subject to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But now, for those who trust Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. We're practically already there. It's our new home. It's our destination. But it's so sure that it's written here in the past tense. Praise God. So if you're a non-believer here today, you too can be forgiven of sin and destined for heaven. You can be destined for heaven for all eternity. You can receive God's mercy and love. You can be saved from God's wrath. There should be no one who thinks that they are outside of the possibility of being saved. Listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Bible says that you should turn away from your sin, whatever it is. If it's in that list, if it's not in that list, turn from it and trust in Him. He lived that perfect sinless life. He always did what pleased God. And by believing Him, you aren't left to plead your own feeble case of what you did. Don't boast of your works. Boast of Jesus Christ and His works. Alright, why did God do this? Why do we deserve this? We don't deserve it. We've looked at who we were. We looked at what God did. Why would God do this? Well, we know it's not because we're worthy to be saved. It's not because there's something beautiful about us. It's actually very simple. God saves sinners to glorify Himself. Did you notice there are two so that clauses here in these verses? Look there at verse 7. And then we're going to compare that to verse 9. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable richness, riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then verse 9 says, So that no one may boast. Clearly God means for humanity's rescue from sin to be a means to display His goodness. No one else gets the credit. And He isn't just displaying it for people. Later in this very letter, of Ephesians, Paul says that God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God is bringing Himself glory by showing the entire universe just how awesome He is. Now if one of us did this, we'd properly be called a narcissist and full of vanity, but it's most fitting for God to do it. Listen to what John Piper said. God is the one being in all the universe for whom self-centeredness or the pursuit of His own glory is the ultimately loving act. For Him, self-exaltation is the highest virtue. When He does all things for the praise of His glory, He preserves for us and offers to us the only thing in all the world which can satisfy our longings. God is for us and therefore has been, is now, and always be first for Himself. So when we acknowledge that salvation is all from God, we highlight that our God is rich in mercy. He's great in love. He's immeasurably rich in grace. And He's kind. And as we follow the course of our Savior, 
and are led by the Holy Spirit and pursue the new desires that come from our new heart, then we can glorify God. Look there at verse 10. It says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has given us new life in part to do good works. As those committed to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, we are very clear that works do not save us. But we also must teach that we are to do good works. And that while we're saved by faith alone, we're not saved by a faith that is alone. These good works are the natural fruit of, good, of true conversion. It is God working in us which causes us to do the good works. These good works will help our fellow men, but more importantly, they'll reflect well on the Savior. The Scriptures tell us to keep our conduct honorable so that when others speak against us as evildoers, even they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as believers, we ought to do our best to relieve suffering in this world, helping widows and orphans, the poor, the needy. But we most want to relieve eternal suffering. We want to make disciples by sharing the gospel. So what else should we take away from this? Well, look back there in verse 9. It's the other so that clause. So that no one can boast. That is true when we're before God, and it's true today. Why are you a believer? Do you think it's because of your education? Your family of birth, or your place of birth? Or your moral aptitude? Maybe you studied harder, or read more, hung out with a better crowd? No, it's none of those things. The reason you are a Christian is simply because of the grace of God. He made you alive together with Christ. He saved you by His grace. It is not of works. We should worship the Lord who made us alive, not try to claim any credit for believing or growing. Instead, we should give credit to where credit's due, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So fellow believers, this should make us, make us think carefully about evangelism. We're silly to evangelize only where we think that we'll have success. Number one, it's not our success to begin with. We're not looking at trying to manufacture a social movement or for outward conformity. And we know it's not because of our eloquence that men are saved, certainly. No, we must preach the gospel, what Paul says is foolishness. And we need to preach it to many. In fact, we should share it with everyone, not knowing to whom God will grant new life. All God's sheep look like goats before they're saved. And remember that list from 1 Corinthians, of such were some of you. That is exactly the group to evangelize. Christians, you bear the name Christian. What you do reflects on that name. I sometimes tell my children when we're talking about telling the truth or finishing through on a project or following through on a promise to tell me their full name. And I remind them that they bear the name Morgan and that what they do reflects on that name. How much more so does what we do reflect on our name Christian? So, as we wrap up, think once again about the Reformation. It's much more than just an interesting period of history. It was a time when God's Word became more available than ever before. It was a time when faithfulness was enough to get you killed. It was a time of great theological debates. But most importantly, it was a time when the gospel itself was recovered and set forth with clarity according to God's Word. We can be grateful to God for the Reformation this Sunday, but most of all, we should seek to follow the example 
of those who went before us and clung to the truth expressed in Ephesians. When we face God, we'll have nothing to plead but Christ. We were dead, but God made us alive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Praise be to God alone that we're alive in Christ. Amen. Would you pray with me?